I, I just wanted to welcome everybody and thank everybody for coming to the uh, Tosca 3030 that we have every 30 days for 30 minutes. And um, uh, this, I wanted to make a note, this is a, an important subject that we're dealing with today on CBI. And uh, I wanted everybody else to know that this is a, an area that you, Adrian, have been working very intently on for the last uh, 24 or 30 months since the uh, adoption of the changes to the Toxic Substances Control Act. So um, the group that is participating today is very fortunate to have your expertise and uh, in, insight into what's been going on here. Go ahead, Adrian. Thanks. Thank you, David. And um, there have been some really significant developments in the past few months, really just the last handful of months. Um, one of the important things that happened recently was EPA's uh, publishing of sanitized Section 5 filings in ChemView. Uh, so these are the redacted versions of the filings that uh, people submit under Section 5 of TSCA. Um, in parallel with that, EPA is now publishing a detailed information on the current stage of each Section 5 case. So this applies to PMNs, significant new use notices, uh, microbial activity notices, and uh, LVEs as well. EPA also released a new policy on TOSCA CBI notices of deficiency in July. Um, basically, it said it was going to stop issuing these notices of deficiency um, and can release information that was claimed confidential but for which it denied a confidentiality claim without any opportunity to correct the substantiation um, or appeal the decision within EPA. So that's very important. And um, it also, in April, released uh, the long-expected chemical identity CBI review plan for chemicals that are active um, and listed on the confidential portion of the TOSCA inventory. Okay, so turning to its publication of Section 5 filings, um, these are in ChemView, which is an online tool, and I have just a screenshot there um, for those of you who aren't familiar um, with it. Um, and now you can search online in ChemView for a PMN number um, and see all of the sanitized filings. And um, I would encourage all of you to go and poke around there if you have um, submitted a uh, recent PMN um, or you have one under review, I would encourage you to look at what is available to the public. Um, you'll see that it includes not just the PMN, the redacted version of the PMN form, but also all of the attachments and um, even proposed or recommended Section 5 consent orders. So this is all now um, at the fingertips of anyone who's interested um, can go online. And Adrian, the critic mm -hmm. if I might uh, just jump in here, uh, with the Section 5 consent orders showing up on this screen, it becomes increasingly important for people to pay attention to those draft orders before they sign them and make sure that everything that is relevant to their CBI claims is redacted. That's an area that I think we in the past have seen maybe uh, not sufficient attention to detail. That's right. And EPA can make errors just um, as the regula regulated industry can 
um, in, you know, inadvertently failing to redact information that should be CBI. Um, so the, the, also the critical piece here is that all data is published as it's submitted to EPA. So what this means is, is um, typically before publishing something, EPA would contact the submitter and have them review and verify that everything that needed to be redacted was redacted. That is not the case now. Um, submitters have one shot at verifying CBI redactions before uh, filing something, or they risk disclosure of that information. Um, so there's just a lot more pressure um, to make sure everything is perfect, um, perfectly redacted when you submit it. And um, again, if you're not um, real familiar with ChemView, or even if you are, I had to kind of look around how to do this, but there's um, an advanced search option, and that's where you can just type a PMN number um, in the document information search bar and pull up all the information um, that EPA has published on that PMN. Okay, in parallel with this, EPA also developed what is supposed to be a real-time Section 5 case review tracking table. This is also publicly available online. So um, it has more detailed information than ever online on each Section 5 case under review. Um, so it'll have the, the current stage, whether it's at the very beginning of the process when EPA has its scoping meeting uh, regarding a Section 5 filing, or a little bit later when uh, the focus meeting occurs. This is when EPA um, has done its preliminary exposure and risk assessment, and they decide whether um, there are any risks that need to be reviewed um, in greater depth during what's known as the standard review process. Um, if a Section 5e consent order has been recommended or executed, that'll be noted in this table, and there's also um, codes for when um, a Section 5 filing is invalid, which typically means incomplete or has been withdrawn. And um, interestingly, it also includes links to certain information in ChemView. Um, most of the links I saw were for consent orders, but it doesn't mean EPA will um, be adding other types of links as well, like to the PMN filing. Um, so again, if you have a PMN under review, you may want to check this table um, just to see if it's accurate, um, what the time, if there is any time lag, and uh, what the update is. Okay, so um, one of the most important announcements happened in July of this year. Um, the announcement was first made uh, be, via an email, um, which I think got the entire regulatory community going um, in July. And it was when EPA announced that it would no longer be issuing notices of deficiency for CBI claims. So um, basically, uh, the background in EPA's rationale was that it gave the regulated community um, a transition period to get used to the more burdensome requirements for making and substantiating CBI claims since the amendments to TSCA um, through the Lautenberg Act in 2016. And now that three years has passed, um, it believes that the regulated community has had ample time to figure out how to comply 
with the various requirements for protecting CBI. And it's no longer going to issue uh, what were known as notices of deficiency, allowing uh, submitters to correct any deficiencies in their CBI claims process. So whether, for example, the certification statement wasn't made or signed, or um, perhaps you didn't check um, or identify the specific CBI claims in your substantiation document um, that may or may not have had parallel check boxes in the PMN form. Those are all um, reasons for EPA to deny a CBI claim. Um, instead of issuing these notices of deficiency that used to allow submitters to correct those within 30 days, it is just simply going to um, provide the bare process outlined in the statute, and that is to provide notice to submitters that the CBI claims have been deemed um, invalid and that the information may be disclosed without further notice. And what that means is 30 days after receiving that written notice from EPA, um, the only remedy is to file an appeal in U.S. District Court. Uh, so, you know, one needs to look out for any of these written notices. They should be sent by certified mail um, uh, from EPA. And be prepared if it's really critical information to potentially file an appeal in U.S. District Court because that is the only remedy. There is no internal process um, any longer. Adrian, Adrian, I would also suggest on the appeal in the U.S. District Court, it'd be important for somebody who's filing that appeal to be familiar with both the uh, procedural requirements for, for APA claims in district court, uh, that is, uh, uh, the uh, Admi Administrative Procedure Act process for uh, making the claims, and the r local rules in the U.S. District Court in which it's filed. And, um, of course, it can be filed in D.C., and I suspect, well, I haven't reviewed the regs, it can also be filed in the district court where the company is located. But equally important is to have uh, attorneys who are familiar with the TSCA CBI process uh, handling the claim. It is uh, going to be somewhat different than the usual process because of the special statutory requirements under TSCA. Adrian? Agreed, David. And um, we, I know we had been talking internally, but you know there there are questions about this new policy and whether, um, even though TOSCA uh, may not require any uh, more notice or uh, a more stepwise process, um, whether such a significant change in policy um, is consistent with the APA notice and uh, comment process or um, maybe more is dictated by under, you know, under the Constitution. So there are some questions surrounding this. Um, I don't think this will be uh, the last we hear about um, the, the process for reviewing CBI claims and denying them. So as a result of this new uh, policy that EPA will not issue notices of deficiency, it's uh, more critical than ever now to address all four elements of the CBI certification statement. Um, this is a statement that's in Section 14, I think it's C 
1B of Tosca. And um, some of the elements are that the chemical identity isn't subject to reverse engineering, reasonable measures are in place to protect the information, um, disclosure would cause substantial competitive harm. Um, those are some of the elements that must be certified um, as part of the filing and the CBI claims process. Um, it's also critical that you clearly identify each claim and substantiate each claim. You can do so um, by grouping claims that have the same justification, um, but all of that needs to be done with the filing up front. Um, of course, you have to provide a generic chemical name when claiming uh, chemical identity, CBI, and there should be a final check in place um, just for CBI. Um, I think this is it's so multi-component now, and it's so critical to get it right with the initial filing that um, you know new processes uh, may need to be in place for companies to address uh, CBI um, as part of you know the routine Tosca workflow. And also, as part of that. Um, everyone needs to make sure that any certified EPA mail is routed to management immediately upon receipt because that, Adrian, um, the timing can be critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would uh, also suggest that people should do the plan, do a plan before all of this gets too far down the road and set up a, a management system as part of their management system in Tosca to identify who should be the person to receive these kinds of notices and uh, who should be involved in discussions about how to handle the notices. Um, this is one of those situations where once the information confidentiality is lost, it's gone forever, and that can cause serious problems. Um, also, Adrian, we've had a couple of questions. Uh, one question I think we can answer right now. Uh, if you find a CBI issue during the review period, can you revise it without going public? I think the answer to that is yes, but you've got to notify EPA and uh, make sure you get the information into their hands. Your thoughts, Adrian? I, I mean, I agree. I think it depends on if EPA has already released the information. Um, because of this effort to do everything real time, um, you know, it is possible that EPA could have already published what uh, you initially submitted in ChemView. So um, timing is critical, um, you know, for all of these issues. Yeah. I think it's that just uh, reinforces the need for people to pay attention to this before the submissions are made and make sure the CBI uh, substantiation uh, information is solid and uh, uh, rigorous and robust uh, in terms of supporting the claims that are being made. I've got another uh, question here, Adrian. Can a distributor hide disclosure of specifics of a SNR, such as Tosca name, accession number, a PMN identifier? Um, I don't think that the specifics of a SNR can necessarily be um, uh, withheld because that, that essentially is public information anyway. Uh, the PMN identifier, um, if, as long as there's an accession number there, that connects it to the PP, PMN as far as EPA is concerned. And if the PMN identifier hasn't been disclosed, um, anything that is any information, I suspect, that has not been disclosed, that the company can substantiate a reason for claiming a CBI should be able to with, be withheld. But public information like SNRs and TOSCA, the 
Tosca generic name um, will have to be disclosed. Your thoughts, Adrian? Agreed. And um, typically, there's a default provision in the SNR regulation, uh, 40 CFR Part 721, that requires downstream notification of or a SNR applicable to a chemical in the product. So typically, this is done through the SDS, and those downstream notification provisions require the identification of the chemical as it is identified in the SNR. So if it's uh, some SNRs can have um, confidential chemical identities protected, so they'll just um, identify the chemical by the PMN rather than the an accession number rather than the confidential chemical identity. But whatever information is public in the SNR, like you said, David, will need to be um, communicated uh, down the supply chain. The last question we can cover real quick is, will the CBI letter from EPA go to the technical contact? Um, I suspect that's who it will be addressed to, but we can't be sure. Um, Adrian, I don't know of anybody who's received that letter yet, um, but obviously that's the uh, technical contact and anybody else identified in the PMN as a potential contact should be alerted to the should be alert to the possibility of receiving the letter. Um, Adrian, I think the other questions we've got we can answer as we go forward. Yes, and I would just add to the technical contact question, you're not limited to one technical contact. Um, so, it, you know, you may want to have someone who knows the chemistry, but also someone who's uh, on the regulatory side as well. Okay, moving on. Um, in April, EPA promulgated, or I should propose the its chemical identity CBI review plan. So this is the plan that's required under TOSCA uh, for EPA to methodically review um, confidential claims for chemicals reported in Form A notices of activity as part of inventory reset. Um, the comments were due on June 24th to this plan, but as we'll see, um, they'll probably be another opportunity for comment. Uh, the main requirement is substantiation uh, for those uh, chemical identity claims. And this is required by all manufacturers, importers, and processors that filed NOA form A's. This was uh, last year when those were due, within 90 days of the final rule. So again, this is for previous form A NOA submissions. It does not apply to form B's. Um, EPA requires that Form B chemical identity claims be um, substantiated within 30 days of filing the Form B, and those will be reviewed on a rolling basis. So this is only for previous Form A submissions. And the statute requires that the final rule be promulgated within a year of EPA's initial active inactive inventory, and that effectively is February 19, 2020. So we're looking at, you know, if EPA meets the deadline, we're looking at a uh, March, April, May um, compliance deadline for substantiation for four May chemical identities. Right, which suggests, Adrian, that people should be looking at their four Mays now and preparing yeah. the substantiation so that when the rule goes final in February, they're prepared to file it as quickly as possible. Um, Adrian, That's we right. have one question about... Uh, the CBI for the chemical identity, 
Um, the question is, if you patent a chemistry or molecule, can you claim CBI? The answer is yes. The inventory is a list of chemicals in commerce in the United States. The fact that there's a patent for a particular type of chemistry or molecule does not mean that it is in commerce in the U.S., and therefore the fact that it's a patented uh, identity does not mean that it cannot be claimed confidential for purposes of the inventory. At least that's the position I would strongly uh, advocate, and I don't think EPA has suggested anything differently in the last 30 years. Adrian, is that uh, your understanding as well? Yes, absolutely. That's a great question, though. It does come up from time to time. Right. Okay. So taking a, a, a closer look at this CBI review plan proposal, um, EPA in that uh, proposal talks a little bit more about the 10-year protection period uh, for approved CBI claims. The 10 years is the statutory requirement, um, but EPA clarified that that um, is going to start from the date the first person asserted a claim after June 22, 2016. So if there are multiple um, manufacturers claiming a single chemical identity as CBI, it's going to start from the, the date the first person asserted the claim. It's not an individual, uh, ten, the 10-year isn't triggered on an individual basis. Um, it also proposes an exemption if the chemical identity was previously substantiated in the last five years. Uh, now, the way that exemption is applied is a little bit different depending on whether the substantiation was uh, voluntary in the NOA form A. Um, manufacturers, importers, and processors had an opportunity to substantiate, but they didn't have to um, at the time they submitted the form A. If they did, then there's no further action required on their part for compliance with this rule. Um, however, if it was in another filing, then um, those companies must affirmatively invoke the exemption and identify the previous substantiation by date and case number or other identifier within the 90-day deadline um, in order to be eligible for it. Yeah, Adrian, this 10-year protection period, the way they've got this structured, creates what I think may be a very difficult situation. Suppose I file a CBI claim today and three years from now, you file your own CBI claim. Well, I filed CBI for the chemical identity, and um, that means that I uh, have basically uh, told EPA, I don't want EPA to tell anybody that um, my CBI claim was made and that um, I'm selling that chemical identity. So I'm wondering how EPA is planning to put, put on notice anybody who subsequently files for a chemical ID CBI for a particular chemical where there was somebody else earlier in, the, in, the, in time making the same claim. The reason that's important, of course, is that if you are the person who second is the second in line, you need to know when that 10-year uh, protection period expires because it will be before the date that you think it is the 10-year protection period based on your own filing. So uh, that seems to me to be one of the things that uh, industry should raise with EPA in terms of how they're going to handle that disclosure and that information. Uh, we've run into similar situations in the past where a significant new use rule 
was issued for a chemical that had been submitted as CBI. Others had submitted CBI previously, and of course the uh, significant new use rule in our situation came as a complete surprise, uh, in particular because we didn't know that there was somebody else who had filed um, the uh, uh, identity as CBI previously. So uh, this raises some interesting um, sort of administrative questions and just practical problems in terms of finding out when these uh, p protection periods expires. Adrian? Agreed. Um, so one, actually that leads us perfectly into our next slide. So if EPA approves the chemical identity confidential claim, it will assign it a unique identifier. And the unique identifier is um, based on the year and um, the order in which the claim was improved, approved. So, you know, one way EPA could address this would be presumably both chemicals would get the same UID um, because that's the way uh, EPA's unique identifier policy, um, they decided to apply it. It's not chemical and company specific, it's just chemical specific. So um, both, you know, both companies should have the same UID if the chemical identity is the same. And then that date, that year date, um, presumably would be based on the first claim, CBI claim, rather than the one three years down the line. But again, it's all in how it's applied. So um, yeah, that it, it could raise interesting, some interesting administrative questions. Um, if EPA denies or rejects the CBI claim, again, it plans on sending the 30-day written notice of denial and uh, disclosure to the submitter. And um, EPA is proposing that if you fail to file a substantiation at all within 90 days, um, the compliance deadline, they, um, this could result in immediate disclosure of the chemical identity without any notice at all. And um, that's because it's interpreting the failure to comply with the rule as a waiver of the claim. And so they have no obligation, if you waive the claim, to issue it any sort of written notice. Um, EPA is supposed to complete all these chemical identity CBI reviews um, by February 19, 2024, and then each year it's supposed to publish its goal for how many um, reviews it will complete that year and then how many reviews it completed in the, in the last year. Um, so this will be done, uh, looks like, on a rolling basis once the substantiations are filed. Okay, um, just about, I would say a few days after EPA proposed the CBI review plan rule, the DC Circuit um, issued its opinion in a case that uh, challenged EPA's original inventory notification active and active rule. Um, in the DC Circuit opinion, they upheld every part of the um, inventory um, activity rule except for um, EPA's uh, arbitrary elimination of some reverse engineering substantiation questions in the final rule uh, which were um, in the proposal. So um, the proposal required submitters to show that a chemical identity is not readily discoverable through reverse engineering by asking a few questions. Um, now, those of you who are um, fairly familiar with the CBI process will recognize that this is one of the questions that uh, you must certify 
as part of that four-prong certification statement. Um, but EPA did not require it to be further substantiated in the final rule, um, even though it had proposed these questions. Um, so EPA either needed to explain why it wasn't required, why it wasn't requiring them in the final rule, or to in fact include them since they were part of the proposal. And some of these questions relate to, you know, what the form of the chemical substance is when it leaves the site of manufacture. Um, can the chemical, you know, is there some sort of analytical method that can discover the chemical identity? Um, and there are definitely some substances that are not uh, readily discoverable through reverse engineering. These yeah, are uh, UV. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Dan. Adrian. If I could, um, this re reverse engineering business is somewhat, uh, in my mind, uh, oversimplified by um, people like EDF. Just because there's a, a chemical method to analyze a chemical and identify it as part of a, a mixture or a compound doesn't mean that the actual product that's being made can be reverse engineered. And that, it seems to me, is the real gravamen of the questions that needs to be answered. Adrian, if you can put the next slide on. Uh, we're just nearly end of our time, so we want to make sure we get to the strategies going forward. Um, so I, I do think this is one subject, though, that does uh, bear uh, input from the uh, regulated community and very strong comments by the community about why reverse engineering questions like the ones they're asking are so, somewhat superficial when it comes to uh, protecting confidentiality of trade secret and other uh, confidential information. And uh, I would uh, offer anybody on the call who's interested in uh, participating in a group to file comments on this should uh, send us a note back to the uh, TOSCA 3030 uh, contact, and uh, we will send out a a uh, summary of what we think might be done in this regard to that group, and then uh, if we have enough folks interested, we'll schedule a conference call to talk about whether uh, it would be worthwhile to go forward and what it might cost and what might be involved. Adrian? Um, yes, and to David's point, EPA is supposed to issue a supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking to address this decision on the reverse engineering issue. That's been sent to OMB for review a few days ago, so um, we should be seeing that in the Federal Register in the next few weeks. And again, it's an opportunity for industry to get together and, and comment on that issue. So with these developments in mind, um, we've uh, set forth a few strategies you might want to consider going forward. And we've mentioned some of these, so we don't need to go into detail on um, them again, but um, one of these is to be sure that your TOSCA workflow includes upfront CBI claims assertion and substantiation. Um, and it's, you know, facilitating this is to task someone specifically with handling TOSCA CBI claims and sanitizing submissions. This is the last piece typically of a filing is the CBI work and um, it can get rushed because of that. Um, and so, you know, I think at this point we all recognize that it, it haste, you know, it cannot be done hastily, and that this is a critical, this is, can be critical to the value of uh, your trade secret information and your product. Um, so there should be internal procedures in place yeah, to Adrian, ensure um, that everything is protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I could, I want to add, uh, 
suggest to people that when they're putting these substantiation responses together, you need to, need to make sure you talk to the people in your company who are responsible for your intellectual property, but also talk to your marketing people about how the market would perceive discovery or disclosure of information related to the product that normally you would keep confidential either with your customers or prospective customers and try to keep out of the hands of competitors. Um, that kind of detail is what is going to provide the, the uh, gravity and the robustness to your responses that will get EPA to, to agree. And Adrian, with that, I think we've got to close out because we're uh, just past the end of our time here. Perfect. So um, thank you for joining us on this Tosca 3030. We offer some other uh, 3030s, the OSHA 3030 and the FIFRA 3030. You can find more information on this slide. And our next Tosca 3030 will be in November. So stay tuned for those topics. Adrian, just real quick, we've got three more questions to answer. What we will do is send a response to everybody with those questions uh, after we get done with the, the uh, session today. Thanks, everybody, for participating. Adrian? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye-bye.